Welcome to The Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Thanks again for joining us. Um, today's conversation was, to be quite honest, an uncomfortable one, but one that we had to tackle. The topic is on physician burnout, and there are statistics that show that around three to 400 physicians each year in the United States commit suicide. Uh, those numbers boil down to around one physician per day. When you take those numbers and look at the classes that we have here on our PNWU campus, the combination of our first and second year class doesn't even equal the single number of physicians who commit suicide per year. So it's the equivalent of losing both of the classes that we have here, which is, it's just something that is, it's hard to wrap your mind around. Again, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it has to be discussed because it seems to be something that not many people are discussing. To have the conversation, we were joined by first year student, Angie Maxson. Uh, Angie is preparing to be a doctor as all of our students are here. And her, her choice of field and the decision to care for others, unfortunately, when you look at these statistics, put her at risk of, of falling victim to the things that are, that are plaguing the physicians that are caring for people across the country. To have her as a part of this conversation, to offer her perspective on what she's taking in as a medical student and how she's preparing to deal with the stresses of the job was something that we couldn't pass up. We also had on Dr. Linda Seaman. Uh, Dr. Seaman has years of experience in the healthcare field and has dealt with burnout herself. When she signed in to do this conversation with us, it was months before our recording, and she took those perspectives into account as she decided to participate. Uh, unfortunately, when she arrived, she had just had a life experience and a completely life-altering experience that had really brought these numbers and these statistics, which can sometimes just fade into black and white figures and stats and numbers that don't have a human connection. The reality of it really struck home for her. So I'm so thankful that she joined us to offer her perspective, and I hope that you all get as much out of it as I did. So to start our conversation, today's conversation is on physician burnout, and this will be the only time that I really get into the, st like the statistical side of it because I think that the stories and the human side of it are much more important. But the statistics stick out so much that I wanted to just highlight those before we even started our conversation. Um, so in Medscape's National Physician Burnout and Depression Report, the most recent one, which surveyed 15,000 physicians and they were from 29 different specialties, it was reported that 44% suffered from burnout, 50% uh, of females physicians suffered from burnout, 39% of men, although more men committed suicide than women. Um, the suicide rate in physicians was the highest of any profession, even higher than military veterans, which 
alone yeah. was shocking. Um, doctors die at a rate more than double the rate of the general population by suicide. And it's an average of one doctor per day that commits suicide about, they say about three to 400 per year. And it's tough to, to balance the numbers because they're not sure sometimes mm. which is a suicide and what's accidental or whatnot. Mm. But this is not a new problem. Um, it's been going on and reported since 1858 from what I've looked at. And it seems to only be getting worse. And it's it's such a massive concern coming from a medical school surrounded by medical students every day who are mm -hmm. bright and alive and so mm -hmm. excited to to be working hard towards the profession that they're going to be going into. When you see statistics like that and you hear these stories, it's it's mind boggling. So I wanted mm -hmm. to invite each of you here today just to have this conversation, which seems to not happen often enough. Mm -hmm. So if you could each introduce yourselves and kind of explain what you bring to this conversation, and then we can kind of get into uh, our personal sides of it. Okay, go ahead. Want me to go first? Yeah. Well, my name is Linda Seaman. I'm a physician here in Yakima. Um, I was married to a physician, an ER physician who practiced 33 years um, in full-time emergency medicine. My background is also emergency medicine, which I practiced a decade in Los Angeles County, and then we moved to Yakima to raise our family. I continued to practice a ER four shifts a month to keep my proficiency, but then went into family practice. I had a subspecialty in um, hospice and palliative medicine. So um, I come to this um, table because uh, my husband did commit suicide, um, and he suffered tremendously. And I have, a, I think, a very personal story to share. Thank you for having me today, and thank you, Dr. Seaman, for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, so my name is Angie Maxson, and I'm a first-year medical student. I'm fresh in the game. Um, I have been working for five or six years to get to this point, and um, I came to Yakima to study medicine, uh, osteopathic medicine, and I have three children, and my husband is a child psychologist. So. Wow. Well, when we were trying to figure out who we could have for this conversation, I thought there's no better way to do this than to have somebody who's a student right now. And you're a first year student. You're just mm -hmm. starting this journey and yep. somebody who's had so much experience in the field, mm -hmm. because really, it seems that the problems that go along with this start in medical school and they start from the demands that you have as a medical student and they travel mm -hmm. along every step and they only seem to layer upon themselves as they go. So. In your experiences as a medical student, have you started to feel those those pressures start to, to creep in? I know that speaking to a lot of students, when we try to do anything with them, they're always so busy with their schedules and it yeah. seems like they work 25 hours a day and yeah. it's overwhelming to me. So I can imagine how it feels, especially with the pressure of knowing that you're working towards something you care so much about. Right, yeah. It, yeah, I have felt a lot of pressure since I've started the process. Um, and I, I thought I knew I would understand what I was getting into, but once you're in it, yeah, it's, there's a lot of pressure, um, especially in the transition periods, you know, when we first started classes, just the new, um, the new schedule getting adjusted, it was really difficult. And then as the year progressed, I found myself adjusting and actually handling everything much better. And more recently I've added some new activities and I can feel the pressure again mm. and the need to adjust and mm -hmm. yeah. and to work with with even more responsibilities and figuring that all out. Yeah, it's got to yeah. be 
constantly shifting and there's things being thrown at you, not only with what you're learning, but then with your personal life. You said you have children, Mm -hmm. you have a family and you have to balance that. And it's, it's gotta be really challenging to say that anything is more important than anything else. But at times I imagine you're forced to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I make a choice every day. And a lot of the times I feel like I'm not meeting expectations in one area and doing well in another, and then I'll shift a little and Mm -hmm. it'll feel like I'm not doing as well at home, but really well at school and vice versa. So yeah, it's a constant juggle. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, you have to be really gentle with yourself, I think. And it really helps that I have an amazing support system at home because it's just quite frankly, would not be possible without that. Mm. (laughs) There's just no way. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. (laughs) In medical school yourself, Again, coming back to this being such a, a long-standing problem, was mm-hmm. it still something that existed back then? Was it still those same pressures? I imagine that mm-hmm. it, this hasn't really changed much, and it doesn't seem like there's much changing mm-hmm. to to make it better. Oh, definitely. Um, I think you're always, uh, I think in the training process, and it actually starts in college, and then if you decide to go into medicine, right, you have to perform to get into college, into medical school. Mm-hmm. And then you have to keep performing to get into residency. So you have a very long training track. My my training track was 13 years total. Um, and in that process, this is where some of the danger starts because you learn to deny yourself. You learn to build walls of um, what I call delayed gratification for a lot of things. Uh, Like Angie said, if you add something in that you like, pleasure, or maybe a hobby, something else suffers because you only have so many hours in the day. Mm -hmm. So I I do believe this, um, these walls start to build during this training time. I think one of the dangers, if you look at the, the recent literature on physician burnout is that we tend to think of ourselves as uh, superheroes. Mm. Um, Not that we're egocentric at all, but we are above the average in terms of denying ourselves what we need. And one of the first things to go is uh, emotional engagement. And we can talk more about that, but compassion fatigue starts Uh, truly in your clinical years, because then the responsibility escalates. I actually look back and think medical school and residency were fun, even though I was up every other night on some of my rotations. I was physically and emotionally exhausted. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that was fun compared to transitioning into clinical practice where you were the the boss, you were the bottom line, and you were the target. Mm With that superhero idea, so many people, I would imagine almost everybody who gets into medicine does so out of a selfless place. They're yeah. looking to care for others. And when you mm-hmm. constantly care for others, you're putting them above yourself. Absolutely. And when you're dealing with the stress, whether it's sleep deprivation or mm-hmm. the anxiety of not succeeding in a class or losing a patient, something as horrible as that, mm-hmm. which is an everyday occurrence for many mm-hmm. physicians. Yes. You don't have the the space or you don't even have the mindset, I would imagine, to care for yourself because you're trained to care for other people. That's very, very true. And I think it's one of the danger zones um, that the young doctors need to be very much aware of. 
And we can talk about the what I perceived as the transitions. For me, the first transition was physical exhaustion, mm. um, managing my stress. I was used to managing my stress. It, it was just part of everyday life. When you when you don't have time, you manage your stress well. And for me, the understanding of burnout came when I couldn't manage my stress. I didn't understand that I couldn't manage my stress. I, I understood that I felt depressed. I felt um, when I looked at an admission in, emerge, in my ER, I, I wouldn't see, my compassion would, would, would not be there. It'd be, oh, this is a lot of work now. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have like five admissions. I haven't slept. I'm going to be up all night. You know, I started to see patients as being work. And, and yet that training process, uh, like in the military, trains you to not lose your intellectual capacity. Mm-hmm. So the emotions start to go numb. You're physically exhausted, but you learn how to perform. And you always try to perform well at the the top of your game. And I found that looking back to be amazing. Mm. I, I, I felt it a, an amazing life skill, but I didn't recognize how um, I had compromised my, my personal resiliency, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I became very depressed. I, I was blessed to, to uh, meet, the head of, we meet with the head of psychiatry at Harvard General Hospital, which is the little county hospital that has only 700 beds in L.A. <laughs> and uh, he, he taught me two things. He taught me, one, when you are meeting your limits, you need to cha- make a change and take that risk. And two, set limits. And he also taught me, because we have some endogenous depression in our family, mm. he gave me the advice. He said, you know, when you get stressed, depression will start to kick in for you, maybe more than other people. So you need to consider not doing things that put you over the edge, like working nights, mm-hmm. um, like limiting my my time in my clinic. Uh, he, he encouraged me. And Boy, that was a lifelong lesson that I took to heart, um, and and I try to convey that to the students. Mm. Even with advice like that, I imagine it must be so hard to take the advice because mm. the profession is life or death. Mm. And if you're taking time off and if you're saying, I'm going to mm. do this for myself, there's a real guilt, I would imagine, that comes along with mm-hmm. anything that happens in the time where you're away. Okay. I would assume that, again, with coming back to the idea that this is one of the few professions that people face that there's a revolving door and people mm-hmm. are coming in and they're usually in the worst moments of their life and you're mm-hmm. seeing them every day and mm-hmm. that sort of becomes your life. And the inability to ever reach a conclusion with that has to be exhausting. It is exhausting. And I think that's why the highest rate of um, burnout and suicide is in the emergency medicine profession mm-hmm. right now. Some of the statistics you shared, uh, I would like to just comment on. And one is mm. that in the state of Washington, we're doing very poorly. Um, we're double the, the rate of, of burnout than other states. Um, and number two, the, the, the specialties have changed. It's always been high risk um, if you're in emergency medicine, OBGYN, anything on the front lines now, family practice, internal medicine, pediatrics. Mm-hmm. The other key component are the specialties that have isolation associated with them. 
because you you lose a sense of connection with the camaraderie of your colleagues, like radiologists mm -hmm. and anesthesiologists, they're top. So interestingly enough, the psychiatrists are at the bottom of the list of risk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they learn a lot of the self-skill in their training actually, and, mm -hmm. and maybe implement it much better. So, and the other I th thing I think is important statistically to know is that I believe the rate of suicide is probably twice what you quoted. And it's because physicians go to their colleagues mm -hmm. um, and they try to not document mental health issues. They try to not document because then you have to t face regulatory scrutiny or you get reported as, quote, an impaired physician. And, you know, you're a very competent, confident, intellectual person and you can't expose that because then you're weak mm -hmm. and 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 that's not part of a physician profile so i i suspect that the suicide rate's about two a day um, because of lack of reporting wow yeah when when you look at it that way if you're expected to be caring for other people in their times mm -hmm. of need and it, you can't even care for yourself. That's mm -hmm. probably how people look at it. Yeah. And if I can't take care of myself, how can people trust me to take care of this person? Mm -hmm. And you'd cover it up. I, mm -hmm. I would imagine you'd have to cover yeah. it up. And it's kind of mm -hmm. a, a necessity. And as is the emotional disconnect from your patients. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that becomes so damaging, even if you're not aware of it. But if you see people every day and you connect with them mm -hmm. emotionally and you lose them or they have some mm -hmm. sort of a terrible thing happen to them, mm -hmm. then it's going to do so much damage to you where if you kind of shut them off and start to look at them as mm -hmm. something else other than a person, it's a it's a self-protection measure yeah, that definitely. And I was going to say, and that's why patients always say, well, he didn't have a good bedside manner, mm -hmm. but he's really good. And. And that's exactly what it is. You 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 do have to wall yourself off or you wouldn't be able to perform. Mm -hmm. When you were getting into medical school and coming into this with your husband and the profession that he has, right. you must have been aware of these sort of things where I don't think much of the general public is. Absolutely. Was that something that shaped your decision or had an impact on it at all? Um, it, it has had an impact on my decision. Well, he deals with the worst of the worst when it comes to children and their families. And what I've seen from him is that he maintains a hopeful attitude. And he states that's the reason he is able to continue to do what he does. Um, I just, I don't know if I could be in his position day after day after day, but I think I will find myself in similar situations. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope to learn from him and to take his advice. And I think he's right. I think, you know, maintaining a positive outlook and, um, wow, that the positive outlook and just trying to feel well, feel good helps mm -hmm. him to continue to do what he does. So definitely, yeah. Mm. Yeah. In medicine, when you're treating patients, I would imagine that the the bad news that you have to deliver far outweighs the good news that you're able to deliver. And the 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 miracles sort of cures that you can help people with are few and far between. When you're constantly dealing with that, it must feel like failure. And when 
you know how hard medical school is at this point when you go through the entire experience of medical school and ensure that you know everything that you need to know and then you go through residency and you continue your training and you come out the other end and you're still not succeeding or you're feeling like you're not succeeding even something as simple as that no matter what the profession was if you were you know putting a, a ball in a hoop and you kept missing every time it would be <laughs> frustrating but the idea that you're really having a an impact on people's lives and the work that you're doing there's such a weight to that and i imagine that, that with this profession alone is one of the highest causes of these numbers being so high well i have two comments and there was a woman i heard speak on diabetes management just a couple months ago and it was amazing she said it was a paradigm shift for me as a family practitioner she said you know, you never see all the good you do. Mm. The patients that are well-managed, the patients that don't need to come back, you're only seeing the people you still need to keep treating. And she said, there's thousands that are doing great. And she said, make sure you focus on that. Make sure you remember how many people you are facilitating wellness and, and, and good health care. So that was a wonderful paradigm shift for me. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, um, I use a little acronym called um, Stay on the Map, M-A-P-P-E. And I tell physicians, you've got to remember why you went into medicine. So meaning, you have to sustain a sense of meaningful work mm -hmm. and know that you are making a difference and, mm -hmm. and that nurse at the other conference really made me think about that. Um, the other thing is achieve, we're achievers. So I always say celebrate every achievement, every, every board exam you pass, maybe every clinical test you pass, mm -hmm. but certainly when you get a patient well-maintained, celebrate it, talk mm -hmm. about it. And, and, and they say in, in resiliency um, discussions that bring more people into your practice that you can make an impact on that you like. You know, you can, you as a physician have control over your practice to a certain extent. And so, you know, look, for, who are the kinds of patients that make me feel good, that I'm really good at? And that's why a lot of people do do these subspecialties. They, um, it allows them to do what they love. Mm -hmm. um, the P is um, keep pleasure in your life, whatever brings you pleasure. Mm -hmm. And there's lots and lots of, might be loud music. For me, it's going to my cabin and listening to the elk and getting muddy, um, you know, whatever. But bring keep pleasure in your life, um, and 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 then personal engage personal balance. Like mm -hmm. you were talking, uh, you must in, engage with a support system. Whether it's you know, if you're single, it's got to be your you know group your guys that you go motorcycling with. But I tell the medical students, you got to schedule those things into your life. They mm -hmm. don't just happen. They'll go to the bottom of the list. Absolutely. So your personal balance has to be the top of your list. And then the E is engagement. Stay engaged. Stay engaged. It doesn't matter what what's going on in your life. Uh, is the cup cup half empty or half full? Mm -hmm. You got to look at it's half half full. The empty is going to come. People get sick. People die. People don't do well. It's not your fault. And, and that's the balance. You can become depersonalized and not care, or you can stay engaged and care appropriately, but realize this is just part of your job. Mm -hmm. And keeping that 
um, perspective in your engagement will build resiliency. Mm. Now, when you were deciding to go into medicine, mm -hmm. um, you made the choice, obviously, to go into osteopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. And when I speak to a lot of our students and even our faculty, they say that one of the benefits of osteopathic medicine is the patient to physician connection and the idea that you can spend time with somebody and really understand their life, the things that shape them just outside of the clinic, whether it's their job or their, their family life or their diet or whatever it may be. One thing that I kept reading and looking at these, uh, all these terrifying statistics was the idea that the amount of time that physicians get to spend with their patients seems to be shrinking right. more and more, and they have to see more and more patients and you lose the ability to connect truly with people. And while, again, we could come back to the idea that maybe that's a benefit because you don't have the personal connection if something goes wrong, you don't get into medicine for that. You don't get into medicine to be cold and to be uh, have a stranger come in the room and give them something quick and push them back out and have somebody else cycle in. No. So <laughs> could you talk about your decision to go into osteopathic medicine and how did that uh those factors shape that. Yeah, so I guess mind, body, and soul is um, one of the big focuses in an osteopathic school, and I'm really into that. I um, personally, you know, if I'm not feeling well and I engage my body or, you know, take, take some time to be mindful, it affects my entire being, right? And, um, I think it's just extremely powerful and I want to work with people in a way that incorporates every aspect of their life. And I get that we're limited in our interactions, but, you know, to, to be aware that family relationships and hobbies and work and, you know, diet and exercise, they all affect your patients and they're all very, very important in considering how you care for them and how you care for yourself. And I just, I really appreciate that philosophy. Mm. Um, I have a whole background in psychology, which is what I studied before. Um, and to incorporate that knowledge and my excitement there along with medicine and, you know, social aspects as well. It, you know, it just, I, I just find it really hard to think that you can compartmentalize all that mm -hmm. and be an effective physician, which I know there's a push for that because you you are, you know, stressed for time and have to manage a, a busy schedule, but it's just a part of your patients and mm -hmm. those need to be brought in and, mm -hmm. and addressed. Yeah. In your years uh, working, the balance between connecting with patients and really figuring out their lives and getting close to them, which is so important for caring for them in a way that's going to be beneficial and avoiding connection with them because of the idea that you are may suffer a loss through that. How did you achieve that balance or did you? Well, this is where it's probably appropriate to bring up the topic of um, graduating. <laughs> You get through medical school, you get through residency, you're well-trained, and then you graduate into being in practice. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot in my hospice years. I spent 20 years doing hospice advocacy and development of the career, and they have a big circle, and it, the circle is your culture. And inside, these are this is how you die well. Well, this is also how you live well as a physician. The big circle is 
the culture that you're in. You have to consider your culture. The inner circle is the community you're in. And then you have the patient and you who are the caregiver. So in hospice, it's a caregiver. In the living well, it's the physician. It's, and that relationship is the center of how you um, effectively care for them. And that bond is is very powerful. Um, and there's lots of literature that'll say you, you, if, if your patient bonds with you, you have a lot of influence on their life. But you as a physician have to take into account their family, their community, and their culture. And so it's a very complex uh, decision-making process that you have to manage. So when you get out into private practice in the early 90s, I loved it. I was in family practice. I loved it. I could schedule. I had my schedule under my control. If I knew my patient's daughter was really ill or her husband had just died, I could schedule 30, 40 minutes. Well, what's happened to physicians, and this is what has escalated the burnout and the suicide rate, in my opinion. We now have hospital systems that are telling you how to practice medicine, mm -hmm. and you've lost control. Physicians, by nature, need to be in control to be good physicians and to practice well. So I personally didn't really have a lot of fear of losing, uh, having patients, you know, have bad outcomes, mostly because my training was in ER and I saw that so much. So mm. I experienced a lot of bad outcomes every day. Mm. So that didn't impact me at all. I just wanted to practice better. And I have been very unhappy in the last 15 years with being um, told I can only have 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, because of productivity. I feel like I'm being treated as a rat on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. And I'm a very overpaid rat, if you will. <laughs> um, number two, EMRs hit. Mm -hmm. Hospitals received over $18,000, $20,000 per physician or provider from the government when EMRs were implemented into the healthcare delivery system. Mm -hmm. One of my jobs, my last job that I quit was because I was spending 75% of my time being a secretary, checking boxes, sitting at a computer. I'm 64 years old. You know, maybe the younger generation won't, that won't be so hard. But I would, I could see my patient make a decision and get them on their way. And then I'd spend more than that mm -hmm. time sitting at a computer documenting what I call meaningless, useful, I mean, not, not useful information. Mm -hmm. Medicare calls it meaningful, useful information. Mm -hmm. it's, it's ridiculous. So, so you have the EMRs, then you have litigation. Litigation escalates. You know, you do everything you can for a patient. You, you, you refer them, you do the best you can. I mean, we're not gods, we are perfect. We are human beings, and I think Society forgets we are human beings and we do care. And you get a bad outcome or you don't get a bad outcome. And then you get hit with a lawsuit for somebody you took care of mm -hmm. in the middle of the night with, you know, 20 other people. I mean, that physicians are not wired to take that. Mm -hmm. We take it personally. I don't care what anybody says. It's not just business. Mm -hmm. And economic gain has been the the modus operandi for the last 15 years in this country. And I think physicians have been used and abused 
and they can't take it. Mm. So they're retiring early, they are dying, and they are quitting. I mean, I have colleagues who quit. They were 40 years old. After all that training, they've quit. They can, they will not and cannot sustain a meaningful life in the kind of system that's created. And I feel very, very passionate about trying to push back against that system for the young doctors. It is not why we go into medicine, and we are not rats on a treadmill. Mm. For each of you, then this may feel like a something that you've been asked in sort of a more canned approach, but why did you go into medicine? Because I feel like that's a very important approach to, to go into this conversation. And I imagine mm -hmm. that it's something you constantly have to remind yourself of throughout your career. You do. I went into, I was, I trained at, I, I went to college at Vanderbilt University in Nashville and I didn't have any money. I was very poor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I went through in three years. And I was an interdisciplinary Chinese major, wow. <laughs> which is kind of strange, but mm. I loved the Chinese culture and so learned the language. That's but but in crazy. addition, I took pre-med courses because I always wanted to do medicine. Mm. And I ended up working in the uh, hills of Appalachia mm. two summers mm. as, a, as a college student with Vanderbilt medical students and nurses. They went out into these rural uh, areas of Tennessee, and I was shocked that there were people who lived in these outback areas who'd never seen a doctor, ever. And so the diagnoses that we made were amazing. And I mean, I was just kind of a helper type because I was just in college, but I, I just thought, wow, I want to do this. I can make a difference in people's lives. And it was so engaging to be a part of their lives and then to get them the help they needed or maybe they they wanted, but a lot of them wouldn't drive to Nashville to get the help. And mm -hmm. it was like, well, let's figure out how you can at least take care of, you know, getting this surgery done. You know, we'd make diagnoses of advanced cancers or they, they just lived with it because mm -hmm. they, they didn't want to get out of their little hollers. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I loved working on, um, it was called the Student Health Coalition. Mm. And I loved working with the medical students and the nurses. And I thought, I want to do this. Mm. That's really cool. <laughs> um, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a very long time. And like I said, I went to school and I graduated rapidly. I only took three and a half years to get through college the first time. And I thought psychology was what I wanted to do. And then just sort of following my husband and his career, I realized it was just part of what I wanted to do. I really needed something that would incorporate that. And um, I, I discovered that medicine was really more for me, um, where you can, it's, it's not that you can't, you know, give a solution to somebody with, with therapy, but, um, you know, to, to have solutions that do include, you know, osteopathic, um, care or medicine, even prescriptions there, there are, you know, there's, it feels like there's something more tangible at times. And mm -hmm. I have a, an appreciation for that. Um, but really medicine it incorporates all of my interests um like i said before with more of a biopsychosocial approach mm -hmm. um and as i worked towards another degree about 10 years later as i didn't have the prerequisites needed to apply to medical school um, i started to um, work as a nurse's aide 
on the psychiatric unit at our local hospital, and I cared for um, both the geriatric patients and the adult patients. And it was probably the most meaningful work that I've ever done. It was quite amazing. And it was personal care. And it was the job that nobody wanted to do, you know, and it was, it was hard, but I felt like I had, I don't know, I had more skill and, you know, the whereabout to work with patients that had severe dementia and behavioral issues, which is typically why they would end up, Mm -hmm. you know, at the behavioral health unit. And it just was really, it was really gratifying to help people in their time of greatest need and also at the end of their life, you know, when when they needed more mm-hmm. care and, and assistance, even in, in some of them, some of them passed there. And it was just so, it was so gratifying to be there with them and to help them through, you know, whatever it was that they needed in the moment. And um, so I just kept forward, it, every, everything I did as I worked towards medical school just kept perpetuating me and it, it just felt right. It was where I wanted to be. Mm. Yeah. And taking approach an approach like that, there's such passion in your answer alone mm-hmm. that you can see that that sort of passion you would imagine would carry over throughout everything that you do. But with the constant force back of mm-hmm. whatever you care about and whatever you've gotten into this for, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter at this point. And this mm-hmm. is the reality of it. it has to again, it has to be another completely exhausting piece of everyday life that just wears you down. You've mentioned that you've dealt with this personally, as Mm -hmm. did your husband. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about some of the experiences that you had that kind of put you at the edge of being part of these statistics of burnout and facing the the Mm -hmm. idea that you've gotten into the the wrong profession or that Mm -hmm. the work that you're doing isn't valuable or? Well, the first time I did two years of uh, general surgery at Harbor General because I, I loved being in the OR. I loved fixing things, but I was up every other night on some rotations and every third night. And at the end of two years, I was just physically exhausted. And at that time, there was quite a bit of gender bias. Mm. There were only 10 women in my medical school class to go into general surgery. I don't. I think there was only one other woman even interested in that. And um, honestly, I didn't like my mentors very much. They they were very condescending, chauvinistic. And so as a woman, I had to be better than them. Mm-hmm. And I was, <laughs> but not in a technical way, but I mean, in a, what I could perceive to be an emotional way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it wore me down. And mm-hmm. so I said, I, I'm not going to do this. So I quit after two years of general surgery. And I'll never forget, I, of course, I'm in Los Angeles. I, I literally sat on the the beach, Venice Beach, if you know Venice mm-hmm. Beach, it's it's the most amazing, crazy place. And I, I just, I remember I just slept. I'd sit down the beach and watch people and slept. And I just thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. But then I had the skills to work emergency medicine. So I started what they call moonlighting and just earning some money. You only have to work one year to get your license to practice the internship the first year. And then you Mm -hmm. take your exams and you have a license. Mm -hmm. So I started working emergency medicine. And I did that for four years. And I loved it because I could work and work really hard. But then I could travel. And so I started traveling. In 1985, a very uh, dear friend of mine called me 
from Harbor General and said, Linda, you, you really should finish your residency. Um, it's not good to not finish some kind of a formal training. And I'm like, yeah, right. Well, I, I really like what I'm doing. <laughs> and I'd bought a house. <laughs> so I was like, you know, and she goes, well, you think about it, but we're going to, we have a spot at the second year level. So you, you wouldn't have to repeat your internship. It was like, well, that's good because I wouldn't. <laughs> and um, yeah, they took, so Harbor took me back in as a second year resident and I finished family practice. So, wow. so but because of my ER experience, I became double boarded in ER and family practice. So it gave me the best of all worlds. Then the second burnout is the one I mentioned to you during that residency day where I just, you know, you do good with your stress. And stress is when you can still manage the load. But I had a, I was engaged and we we broke off the engagement. You, you throw in some personal issues. Mm -hmm. I was, I was alone. Um, my parents had moved to Saudi Arabia, so I really didn't have family around. Um, and I just, I became very, very depressed and, and suicidal. And uh, he's, that it only took about three sessions. I think we're fast learners, right, Angie? Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, and you think, okay, I can get this together. And, you know, the, the psychiatrist really put me back on track. And I, I, I started prioritizing how, what I did and when I did it. I actually started pushing back even with my mentors. They'd want me to come in and help in, as first assistant for these long cases just because I was there. What we used to, what in medicine we call it your scut monkey. You just you have to do what they tell you to do, and um, I and I had so much work to do, so many other things to do, and I started pushing back. Um, so it created confrontation. But I said, no, I'm not spending eight hours in the OR. I I don't have that kind of resiliency. I'm tired. I'll I'll help you for two hours, and I'm scrubbing out. And you know, of course, they didn't think that was very good because mm -hmm. I was pushing back, but I had to do a lot of pushback in my, my training years. Um, and I think being a woman was part of it. You know, I had to push back against a lot of the uh, gender biases, but, but residency tends to put you, it's a very hierarchical mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the bottom of the hierarchy, you, you just, it's like the military, you just do what they say. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I started to push back, but the only reason I could push back was because I'd been out in the real world for four years mm -hmm. and I knew what happened in the real world. And I thought residency's not the real world. And mm -hmm. you know what? I'm a person too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I gained respect from most people once they got it, but um, it was it was stressful for me, but I did that and it just made me stronger. So that was my second burnout. And then my my third burnout. <laughs> so just get ready, I, Angie. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, to hear your responses. My third burnout was uh, after getting married, my husband and I went through a very difficult time of trying to have children. Mm. So, I mean, that's why we got married. We were both done with our training, and mm -hmm. um, I lost a baby boy at, at full term. Mm -hmm. um, so I got depressed. Again, life happens. Yeah. You have to be a doctor. You have to do all these things. But life happens, and it's not easy stuff. No. So if you don't have a core resiliency, life, when it happens, pushes you over the edge. So I uh, took a, a year off after that. I uh, just, I couldn't, I just couldn't see patients anymore. I didn't want, to, I didn't 
want to see anybody really. Mm -hmm. So, but the burnout came because I think I was, in fact, I'll tell you this story. I was in the emergency room with my, so I lost that child. I learned a lot. My faith sustained me. I'll be mm -hmm. perfectly honest. My faith in my support system, if I couldn't see the reason for what I was going to do in my future, I, I would have quit medicine right then and there. So then my husband and I, we lost several miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Then I had my little girl who's now 25. And, you know, she was a miracle. But I was working in the ER. I was uh, seven months pregnant with her. And I started having preterm labor. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this. I sat down and I said, you know, I told the nurses, I said, if it's not an emergency, I'm not seeing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, it, was yeah. a, it was a small ER. Mm -hmm. So I sat down and I put my legs up. I said, it was like four in the morning. I had three more hours till the shift was over. And uh, we didn't have any emergencies come in. We had a few patients, you know, with baby crying and runny nose and things. But So they, they were sweet. And I, I laid down and they uh, held the patients till the shift and told the doctor why. And I went home and I didn't work again until after she was born. Wow. So, I mean, those are, I tell those, that's not really a burnout, but it was, it's it's an example of what you have to do to prior, prioritize and take care of yourself. Mm. And you know what? You get, you get pushback. You know, people, oh, well, you can't work here anymore because you're, you know, you're right. doing this, you're doing that. And I'm like, fine. That's why you have your more than one egg, your eggs in more than right. one basket. You know, you just have to be willing to take those risks and uh, do what's right. And she's an amazing daughter. Oh, so best, best job you'll ever have, yeah, right? You right, know that. Absolutely. Totally <laughs> Never is. compromise your children. It's <laughs> ever. the hardest and one of the most gratifying, you yes. know, I've found. Yeah. Um, it just seems like when physicians or med students, whatever level of training you're at, if you're functioning out of fear, fear of losing a position, fear of... Mm -hmm. Whatever it may be, it seems like that's where we're going wrong, I guess. Yeah. You know, like you right. said, it, it's about risk-taking. It um, is. And knowing, I tell the medical students this all the time, they need you. You don't need them. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> you, they, you, they need you. You're the expert. You're the one with all the training. So if they're telling you to be a rat on a treadmill or be a secretary and fill in EMRs for, mm -hmm. you know, half of your time, and you're like, this is so stupid, I could, you know. And they even told me, I said, well, why don't you hire a scribe for me so I can do more, you know, more. They were on my case about productivity. And yeah. I'm like, you know what? Hire a scribe for me. And these hospital administrators goes, oh, well, you can hire them out of your salary. Whoa. I mean, it's just, it's so insulting what is going on in medicine. I was I was a scribe for two years in the emergency department where I came from in Montana, and mm -hmm. I spent uh, the shifts were nine hour shifts at that um, mm -hmm. emergency department. But I would spend nine to twelve documenting on mm -hmm. the behalf of the provider, and most of it was clicking buttons and filling in yeah. circles and double documenting. And um, it's amazing to me the the workload, the paperwork that is associated with one right. patient visit. Um, the physician can care for that patient very quickly and effectively and appropriately, but the documentation that comes along with it is... It's double or it's triple. It's at least, yeah. And, yeah. It ha and it's coming from insurance companies. Mm -hmm. The health insurance industry is very greedy, and uh, so are hospital administrations now. And what 
kind of makes me mad if I'm okay, it's okay to say this, but they've done this to us. They've made the ex escalation of burnout. They've mm -hmm. burdened us with non-clinical things. Mm -hmm. And now they have all these wellness programs that are springing up. But I want to tell you why those wellness programs are springing up. They are not springing up out of care for the physicians. They're springing up because the dollar sign's mm -hmm. being impacted. Mm -hmm. For every physician that retires, quits, or commits suicide to re recruit, replace the physician, rebuild a panel that they lost, it's easily a half a million. Mm -hmm. And only because that economic data is coming out do they care. Mm. So I have a great angst about what's been done to physicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's just not right. Yeah, coming back to that idea of them needing you. Mm. When I was, again, looking at these statistics, with the amount of suicides that happen per year, they estimate that over a million people lose their doctors in the yeah. United States mm -hmm. due to physician suicide. Mm -hmm. And with the shortages that especially rural and underserved areas mm -hmm. already face, losing your doctor, especially somebody who you've developed a relationship yeah. with, who you begin mm -hmm. to trust with your own health, mm -hmm. that's devastating to the patient as well. Yeah, so this is, this is a problem that not only impacts the healthcare community, but it impacts every community that the healthcare community impacts, which yeah, is everybody. It, which yeah. is everybody. Yeah. And it's, we've already developed a more fragmented system, mostly because of insurance mandates. You know, people can't go see this doctor because mm -hmm. now they got this insurance coverage. Um, uh, and we fragmented our system by introducing hospitalists. You know, it used to be y your patient goes in the hospital, you see them, mm -hmm. and you get consultants to help you take care of them if it's out of your skill set, but you still retained a relationship. Mm -hmm. When I went in the hospital uh, with my mother-in-law when she got very ill, and I, I, if I hadn't been there, she'd probably gotten three CT scans of the same thing. You know, you patients are... And that's driving up healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. But you know what? They don't care. They just make money. So, you know, that's this whole thing about how money, I mean, they say, well, why is why have healthcare costs gone up? Well, defensive medicine, I don't mm -hmm. care if you don't want a CT scan, buddy, you're going to get it because mm -hmm. I don't want to go to court. Right. Okay. Number two, I, I don't. I don't even know, you don't even know what my mother-in-law was in here for last time. And now you're taking care of her again with, you know, recurrent AFib and seizures. And it's like, what do you know? You know, you get mm -hmm. sort of angry if you're a physician mm -hmm. because you know the difference. But, you know, your general public doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hospitals mandate that physicians order enough tests or they start kind of harassing you. Mm -hmm. that's, that's unethical in my opinion. I mean, they, they, and, and then they, now you have patient or physician profiles on the insurance websites. Well, you don't make the, the good doctor five stars unless you've been, a, a you know, in their camp ordering lots of money and mm -hmm. making money for them. People don't realize that greed is what's run, running the, the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. And physicians have been assaulted and insulted. And that's why it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. One thing that, um, I always hear from students and I hear from our faculty again. I think when people picture doctors, they picture somebody who's in this really affluent uh, profession and they're making a lot of money and they're very well off and comfortable in their lives. But 
working at the medical school and speaking to our students, you can see the stress that comes along with taking mm. on the student debt that oh. medical school brings. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I imagine, again, that's a, another huge factor in when you're signing up for this, you're doing so, and everybody that I've spoken to, mm -hmm. they know that they're taking on that debt, but Absolutely. they're doing it because there's a cause that they're looking to fill. They're, they want to take care of people. Mm -hmm. And when you take on that debt, you do all this work, you get into the profession, and you find out that you're being, your strings are being pulled to the point where you can't take care of people the way that you've always imagined, that again has to be devastating and another mm -hmm. massive factor in these terrible numbers. Well, and that's why I say don't get trapped. Mm -hmm. Remember yeah. I said that I have a friend in town who's a, a family practitioner. She's a little older than me. And uh, she'll say, I really feel bad for the young doctors. She goes, they're, the, they're going to be the highest paid indentured slaves I've ever known oh. in this country. And well, and I couldn't afford to go to medical school if I, I, I paid $5,000, I hate to say, uh, <laughs> at my state yeah. school. And oh, I, you know, wow. I don't even know what your tuition is here, but... Uh, yeah, it's it, that's obscene, and it's but it's in all our higher education. Mm -hmm. It's you know? true. Yeah, it's not specialty P medicine. Kids don't but. go to college because it's too unaffordable. You know, it, it's really we have some pretty backwards values in this country, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, education it's it's a privilege. It's not something that, at least in the United States, is a right or given to. You know, the opportunity is not offered to everybody. It's true. College is very expensive, and graduate or beyond is is even more exorbitant. Yeah, and I had many people, you know, try to persuade persuade me or dissuade me really from going to medical school solely because of the loan debt mm. that I would be accruing. And you know, for me, I'll I'll deal with it as it comes. You know, mm -hmm. I can't um, focus on the loans. I wouldn't get through. <laughs> it just isn't no. realistic. But I, I am taking steps, you know, scholarships and, mm -hmm. you know, there are ways to manage it as you go. Um, and then, you know, service is ultimately how, for example, my husband is dealing with his incredible loan debt, mm -hmm. you know, um, public service. Uh, and I hope to do something similar. Mm -hmm. um, but again, then you are sort of under you know, someone else's control, mm -hmm. sort of, you mm -hmm. owe so much time or, you know, mm -hmm. I would imagine then you're kind of under their thumb with how mm -hmm. they, they run their organization mm -hmm. or, or business. And well, and they know that that's, mm -hmm. so I actually teach a, I've taught um, contract negotiations at the school. Periodically mm -hmm. I'll go out. I, mm -hmm. I did it for three years and then last year I couldn't do it. Um, but one of the things I, I tell the students is, other than they need you, right? You don't mm -hmm. need them. But also, uh, don't don't I, don't listen to them when they say, well, this is boilerplate. This is what everybody does. You know what? You can negotiate every line of a contract. And um, loan forgiveness is often part of that. Mm -hmm. And they'll tell you, no, that's why you have to be a risk taker. Right. I, you have to be able that. to walk away from, mm -hmm. they want to control you. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll ride your, your hide if you're not producing for them. And you know what? That is so insulting. I mean, I don't know why patients don't 
rebel because you know they don't they don't like to be pushed in and out they don't like their doctor sitting at the computer the whole time while oh. they're trying to talk i mean you ask any patient they don't like that yeah. mm-hmm. here we're all doing what we don't like because somebody's trying to make money off of us that's just wrong mm-hmm. one of the great shames of this too is I, I would hate for this conversation to dissuade anybody from going into medical service because mm-hmm. it's so needed you, oh. We need doctors, especially Absolutely. you're from, are you from Montana? I am. Oh, yes. Places like Montana. Here, Washington. There are massive gaps mm-hmm. in healthcare and people need doctors. Absolutely. And the idea that we're pushing people away from the profession that's so mm-hmm. needed and so beneficial to so many lives is, mm-hmm. it's sinful, really. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. And I also think that the, um, what she just, Angie just said is, the, the heart of medicine. The house of medicine needs to have compassion brought back into it mm-hmm. because that's why we do. Why would you get a half a million dollar yeah. debt? Why would anybody do that? That's why more women are in medicine. When, when I went, nobody, there were no women in medicine when I went to school. Now it's mostly, well, it's over, it's about 50% or more, I think. But women like that, they don't, men, They want to make, you know, they're the breadwinners, the providers often of the families. And they're like, well, I don't think I want to do all that and do the debt. And I mean, you know, they're Mm -hmm. not going into the field. Um, And the other thing is I've been told to my face by hospital administrators that if I make less money than I made in 1990 when I started, Mm -hmm. less as a family practitioner. Wow. I've been told to my face, well, it's okay. If you, if you don't want this contract, we'll just hire a PA. And I have nothing against physician assistants, but they have two years of training. Mm-hmm. I have 13. Yeah. I am not feeling valued mm-hmm. as, a, as a human being. And you have to be strong enough to, again, say, fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not working for that wage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do your homework. <laughs> it's interesting, too, that you said that more women are going into healthcare and maybe, I don't know, I was reading something about how, well, actually, Paul, you said, too, at the beginning that, you know, about 10% more of physicians that are burnt out are female. And I don't know if that's just because the number of female providers have gone up. But I can only imagine sort of why with the social roles mm-hmm. and then um, the professional roles that we have to play. It's just an interesting an interesting thing. Well, women take on a lot of what. And I survived by... by um, you know, obviously being very good at multitasking. Right, but, absolutely. But my job was to take care of my husband and my mm-hmm. children. And my career had to take a second fiddle. Mm-hmm. Um, the beauty of, in retrospect, is I learned how to be an entrepreneur, which is what I didn't think I could ever do. But I started doing contract work. I would, you know, find uh-huh. odd jobs. I felt like I became the queen of part-time jobs. But, you know, actually, I kind of liked it. You know, but but you have to be able to take risk and enjoy change. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people can't do that very well. And so I, I think women naturally take on a lot more multitasking and, and uh, multi multiple hats. Mm-hmm. Um, but women also get more depressed and um, get burned out, I think, than men. Yeah. We're not as good at living in the little compartmentalized boxes that you know men can. I learned how to do that now, though. I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> but I had to learn how to do that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> when I was looking at this, it it's an undercovered and underspoken of thing, but there are plenty of people writing about it and talking about it. 
But I think what happens is the statistics, no matter how shocking they are, seeing 44% feel burnt out and 50% of females and all those things, what happens when you look at only stats is they become numbers and they don't mm-hmm. feel like there's a real um, a human element to it. Mm-hmm. Dr. Seaman, you have, unfortunately, maybe the greatest direct human element of this story mm-hmm. to share. Can you bring that to this conversation? Because it's so important to understand that this is not just a statistic that stands out on a page that mm-hmm. makes your eyes open, but it's it's an impact on a life and it's an impact on not only your life, but so many lives. Well, like I said, my job was to support my family first. Um, and my husband, as an ER doctor, I think when my little girl was growing up, we only had four days a month that we could have dinner together because they were seven to seven and he'd have to leave early and come home. So you just, we never had a norm (laughs) in our life, right? Biorhythm shifts were constant. I think one of the beauties of my husband was I saw him circle the wagons to survive because even as he aged, and this made me mad, a lot of things make you mad as a wife, right? I mean, here's my husband in his late 50s, and he's being told he has to do the same share of night shifts. That's a system problem. Mm -hmm. You can't do recovery from a night shift when you're 55, 60, like you can when you're 30. And they know that, but it's the dollar sign. It's Mm -hmm. all this craziness. Uh, The other thing is, so my, my husband understood how to be resilient. He had amazing hobbies. He had amazing passions. And he spent his time in those arenas to recharge. And people need need to do that in medicine regularly. But unfortunately, what happened to him, and it's a fairly harsh reality, which I hate to even share in front of Angie, but, you know, he, he was doing well uh, with retirement. One of the highest rates of suicide in physicians is the first year into residency and the set first year of retirement. Mm. So he had retired. He came home one night and said, I can't handle this insanity anymore. And that was it. Mm. <laughs> he said, okay, time to retire. So he had retired. And um, uh, six months into retirement, he got uh, hit with some litigation from 2015. Mm. And I can't really discuss that, but there were no damages. But... Then this complaint went to our regulatory board, MQAC, mm-hmm. Medical Quality Assurance Commission, which is supposed to monitor, quote, public safety. And they don't get that many complaints, but when they do, they just go after them. So here's my husband, 33 years, full-time ER, saved multiple lives, gets an MQAC investigation. Uh, it goes from bad to worse. And because he's retired and because he doesn't want to spend personally $50,000 to defend the allegations, he just signed it and said it doesn't matter. Hmm. So it's basically like a dishonorable discharge from the military. So then that creates a cascade of events where they take your license. And when they take your license, you go to the National Data Bank. And then when you do all that, you lose all your board certifications. And he was still board certified in emergency medicine. So 
very proud, very competent, very um, intelligent. So he has to go through, quote, what I call an inquisition, um, gets this dishonorable discharge, and he, he compartmentalizes it and says, well, you know, I'm retired. Who cares? I don't need my license. Mm -hmm. I don't need this. But one complaint led to that. That's not uncommon. And physicians yeah. need to fight back against these regulatory boards. So we tried to just sort of go, well, whatever, who cares? Well, guess what? Next thing you know, this MQAC allegation, which he did never agree with, it's an allegation, if you know, legal terms, was fuel for fodder. And this particular plaintiff then filed a lawsuit and went after him with a very vicious model wow. attorney. And you know what? He took his own life two days after the deposition. And my husband wasn't my husband for about three months. He'd been stripped of his career, mm -hmm. everything he'd done and given to humanity. And we allow a regulatory board to do that to physicians. He's a hero. He received the Hero Award here in Yakima Valley from the American Red Cross. He received a Hero Award from the American Board of Emergency Medicine. Out of 36,000 board-certified emergency physicians, only 1,100 ever reached the 30-year mark. Wow. He's a hero. And we allow MQAC to do this to our physicians. And then it became fuel for fodder for our a vicious lawyer who's going to defend somebody who has no damages. He couldn't take it. I could understand that. It, Spending it, so much time it, caring it just, for others. Depression went from bad to worse and robbed me of my retirement with my husband, my best friend for 40 years. I'm so sorry. It's so not right. Anyway, I, I feel like I do want to talk about it because I think it's it's so wrong. Public doesn't know. It's just so wrong. Anyway. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's an incredible story. Well, thank story. you for asking. And I wouldn't be here if I didn't feel it was important to talk about. Mm -hmm. With such a, it sounds like he had such an amazing career. He did. Um, yeah, he yeah. saved five or six doctors in this town in the first five years he was here. Mm. I mean, and look what that did. Mm -hmm. He saved, you know, a neurosurgeon, a cardiologist, an ENT doctor, you know, in the in the front lines. And they had full practices, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and look at all those patients that they continued to give to. I mean, he was he was the best. He was a Phi Beta Kappa Stanford graduate. I mean, he was the best of the best. Mm -hmm. So Anyway, thank, mm. thank you for asking. Thank you for sharing. I'm so sorry for your loss. Okay. Now, somebody like him who's spent so much time in the field and done so much great work, the idea that even he could fall victim to these sort of things is, it's again, it's as eye-opening as anything. And it really reveals how important this conversation is. So I'm so thankful that both of you join me today. Mm -hmm. I, what I don't want to do is, again, end the conversation on the note that this is uh, a futile enterprise, that you're right. going into a field that <laughs> oh. 
It's not. <laughs> so what I want to talk about are some of the approaches that each of you and your experiences, whether it's as uh, all, in all your years in practice or you as a medical student or your experiences with your husband, things that may be able to shift or advice that you have for people in the field. And you've already given so much great advice to make mm -hmm. sure that this problem, which again, seems to keep escalating and getting worse and certainly isn't improving doesn't continue and that we can make sure that people like you doctors who are needed can get the training that they need to go out and change lives and save people and not be discouraged by these numbers and not be discouraged by all of the the things that shape the career that shouldn't really when it's a career that's driven by people who want to help people who care so much thank you well i i think the uh the take-homes are kind of what I said, stay on the map, you know, the M-A-P-P-E, mm -hmm. continue to know why you do what you do, the meaning behind what you're doing, celebrate all your achievements, retain personal um, pleasure, um, focus on personal balance and don't compromise your your family, uh, your your own health, and, um, and then stay engaged. I mean, I, I became engaged with palliative care because it spoke to me mm -hmm. as a subspecialty mm -hmm. and I, you know, and then now I feel engaged to really help young doctors be resilient. And if it requires pushing back at these, you know, greedy entities that destroy people's lives, then I will do it. Yeah, I, that advice is very powerful. And I, I believe a lot of us, you know, work towards putting that into practice. I still I still think there is a you know obviously a breaking point for people mm -hmm. and conversations like this are so meaningful mm -hmm. and really important mm -hmm. and I think changing the culture of medicine is is you know really important in overcoming this and layers of resiliency you know include first your family or your significant others um, certainly your collegiality. Mm -hmm. Our community kind of fell apart when the hospitals demanded um, and we submitted. We're so, we, we're so busy. We don't want to fight things, right? Doctors are so busy. And they just, they just joined the medical staff. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our collegiality went away. Mm -hmm. um, we became more isolated in right. our little worlds. Then we became fragmented because we weren't doing continuity of care um, and then we allow litigation um, to go on and on and and you know we there's just two and then these regulatory boards they're so inappropriate um, I mean yes there's some appropriateness but that you know what I mean yeah but but those layers of resiliency you you just have to uh, maintain uh, consciously I mean, it has to me, it's mandatory, but it has to be a conscious and intentional uh, part of your life and your planning and take time off if you need to be yeah. that be that risk taker. We were talking about at the beginning. It's it, they need you. You don't need them. Well, and how can you be there for them if you're not you? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. As one of the authors of a recent uh, burnout article wrote, you know, we have to put compassion back into the house of medicine. Um, compassion means coming alongside 
passion. And our passion is to help other people. Mm -hmm. And we know more than anybody else about how to do that when it comes to their health. Mm -hmm. And it's not just physical health. No. It's emotional health. It's spiritual health. It's social health. You know, we address loneliness. It's financial health. You know, we we are we are we are that relationship, and we have the ability to address all those things with our patients. And we have allowed um, insurance companies and healthcare delivery systems to pull us apart. And we've got to get back with our patients and say, "This is what we need to do." Um, and then I think we'll we'll feel better, and mm -hmm. the patients will be healthier. Healthcare reform. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Open Pandora's <laughs> box. <laughs> I mean, I really would like to know what you suggest. You know, what your thoughts are as a physician, because you know I've asked other physicians, and each one sort of has their own idea. Mm -hmm. um, well, healthcare reform is a buzzword that I <laughs> I don't talk about. But what I just said was what I meant. You know, it's a relationship issue. We we have a relationship with our patients. We don't have a relationship with insurance companies mm. or or um, Medicare or <laughs> congressmen necessarily. I mean, we care, and we've been putting these things on the plate um, a long, long time. But again, I think we get taken advantage of because we're so busy. Mm -hmm. You know, we're there doing what the work that needs to be done and everybody else kind of decides all these decisions. And, you know, I went through the University of Washington Physician Leadership Program. Mm -hmm. It's a it's like a I forget, but I think it's six month or nine month certification. And and the bottom line was how to be involved with these decisions. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother time sink. That's a whole nother thing. We we don't need, I mean, and a lot of physicians have gotten on board now. You know, there's medical, I, this is facetious, but there's medical directors of coffee, you know, breaks, you know, at some of these hospitals who don't do a darn thing. They're not doing clinical medicine, but they've gotten on board with the leadership. Well, the leadership isn't doing the heart of medicine, which is patient, patient care. care. Yeah. Well, one of the, the things that kept coming out in this was the idea that um, people feel underappreciated in their work. Mm -hmm. And so before we close, I just want to thank you for everything that you've done. Mm -hmm. And thank you for starting this journey, no matter how Absolutely. challenging it is. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Freeman. I appreciate thank you. your time thank today. You. Yeah, I've enjoyed oh. it. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning into The Scientific Method. To be the first to hear upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more, subscribe now.